0: hello pros from dover and chicken salad sandwiches and all the ships at sea and welcome to a very good year the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year i'm your host jason bailey and across the mic across the how did i fuck up a thing i say every single week (laughs) i'm gonna go from the top because that's just bad juju three two one Hello, pros from Dover and chicken salad sandwiches and all the ships at sea, and welcome to A Very Good Year, the movie podcast where we invite a guest to pick their favorite year of movies and talk to us about that year. I'm your host, Jason Bailey, and across the mic and across the country from me is my co-host. Michael Hull. That's why, I, because see, you're not across the country from me today, so that's <laughs> why I stumbled on the first take. Uh, Mike is actually in the next room from me uh, in New York on a trip. Uh, for a production trip, uh, but we found out a few minutes ago that we can't actually record in the same room because of the echo and the drag and the bleed. Uh, so across the mic and across the, the wall. wall from me is my is my co-host <laughs> Michael
1: Hull. <laughs>
0: Our guest today is a film critic and podcaster extraordinaire whose one heat minute productions have given us excellent, expansive, thought provoking explorations of films like Zodiac, Inherent Vice, Miami Vice. All the President's Men, Last of the Mohicans, Master and Commander, and, of course, Heat. He is currently co-hosting Midnight Run Through with friend of the show, Jen Johans. Here he is, our friend and yours, Mr. Blake Howard. Hello, sir.
2: Hey, boys. How are you?
0: Thank you so much for doing this. It's such a pleasure to hear your your dulcet tones uh, coming, th- coming through the, the, the headset here. We really appreciate you taking the time with our vast uh, time zone differences to come on and do the show.
2: This is my life is literally working <laughs> across time zones, weird hours, all times yep. of the day and night. So it's a pleasure. I'm a fan, long-time listener. I listen to I think we've got lots of mutuals, you know, the, yes. the Sean Burns of the world, the Roxana Haddadis of the world, and I'm always checking on what you guys are doing. And uh, I was so excited to get the invite. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure.
0: All right. Well, let's you made your first big splash with One Heat Minute, which walks through the three plus hour well just a little under three hour michael man masterpiece heat one minute per episode at yeah. risk of asking the question that i know you've been asked a million times what on earth possessed you to take on <laughs> such a massive project
2: uh well my friends were really ruthlessly honest with all my dumb ideas up until that point of what podcast <laughs> to start so you and, have real uh, friends and yes yeah. Yeah, so i have real friends who like backed me into a corner, if you like, and kind of gave me what I call the goodwill hunting speech, you know, it's not your fault sort of thing. Right. And said, like, what do you actually want to do? And my response, kind of stupidly, that changed my life to this point was, I just wanna fucking talk about heat every day. (laughs) And my friend responded with the I'd listen to that. And it changed my whole life. So then, you know, they're not too long after that, one heat minute was born and it was really just an exercise. Like it's my favorite movie of all time. Jace, you know what it's like. If you are ever working, and at the time when I was first starting out as a film critic, I was working in radio. So you see everything that you can see, you're writing reviews about it, and so much in certain times of the year is garbage. Yep. And you're like, why do I even want to do this? And I would always find um, faith in cinema again with watching heat, like at 11 o'clock at night, not going to bed until like two o'clock in the morning after watching heat. And so I was like, it stood up to that level of scrutiny for me. And I'd studied it at university and Michael Mann and, um, you know, we'll talk a little bit about the year too. But yeah, so that's, that's what possessed me. It was like more like, could this stand up to this kind of scrutiny? And it did. And it, it turned into this like exercise of like, shut up, Blake, go do a podcast uh, into yeah. an entire kind of industry uh, that I've made for myself and kind of my little subsection of film criticism. Um, I'm the, right at the back of the orchestra playing the triangle, I say, and that's, <laughs> so. this is where I, pl- I play the shit out of that triangle, by the way. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so that's, that's what I do up here at the back.
1: But you've really done it I I saw that movie once And I was like I don't like this movie And I never watched it again But I was always embarrassed To say that out loud In front of film people Because everybody loves it I'm the only person I've ever met Who doesn't love that movie and then i heard that some fucking lunatic was making was covering every single minute of it and i was like you know what i never really liked that movie but just for the sheer balls on this guy i'm gonna throw on one of these episodes you know like and then so i haven't i haven't listened to all 166 minutes i'm gonna be you know but i have and 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 i don't
2: know anyone who (laughs) has it's it's okay no i i've we've got I'm so lucky so many people have listened to it and send me such beautiful messages yeah. and notes. But and listening
1: thoughtful... to you talk like listening to you talk about your favorite movie has actually really genuinely changed the experience of that movie for me and it started 1 minute at a time you yes. know and like it really is one of those things where it's your passion and your explanation of it and this happens all the time I'll tell Bailey like oh, I didn't like that movie and i will be like what you didn't like this and this and that and I'm like oh that was pretty good and then I go watch <laughs> it again and like you know <laughs> approach it differently you know and yeah. anyway we were discussing a couple weeks ago that I've never seen Last of the Mohicans I'm actually more excited to watch that movie because I know there's a one minute I might watch that fucking movie one minute Well, it's
2: it's we do talk about the last 12 minutes of that movie because I I think it's the greatest ending of any movie ever it plays like an action film clip and it is glorious uh in in the greatest sense of the word and so that's what we really focus on there but it is a sensational movie and I I do have to say I l- recently listened to the Jen Giants episode when you said I didn't know that Daniel Day-Lewis was fuckable um <laughs> my word Michael you are in for a treat hubba <laughs> and or hubba Daniel Day-Lewis in last of the Mohicans man it's life-changing dude
1: the passion you have for the triangle is really inspiring (laughs) brother thank you thank you for doing it yeah well and you know
0: as we've discussed here you've you know you've really you've built a little empire and you've done series on several like of of your, your favorite or your 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 associate's favorite individual films what are you looking for in a movie to give it this kind of up close attention? Like what is what is your selection process for deciding what the next series is going to be?
2: It is very simply um sort of it's sort of like very revealing to say this. An unhealthy relationship with said text. <laughs> <laughs> so if my sure. if I, if I've ever worked with anyone in the shows that I've more exclusively produced, it is what mm-hmm. it, what does that person have an unhealthy relationship with? And if we approach it, I'm looking for the most specific way that I can make it them. You know, I've recently mm-hmm. working with Ethan Warren, who's a terrific author. And we did a mini series on Paul Thomas Anderson that co- coincided with his book or Travis Woods with Inherent Vice um, or Jen and I working together on Midnight Run-Through. It's like, I need to know those people have the stamina and the unhealthy relationship with it to can keep the stamina. Cause as you said, Michael, yeah. like my favorite movie of all time is like 160 episodes of like schizophrenia living inside me because <laughs> I can hear all the portals through which my guests view my favorite thing and open mm-hmm. my experience. So it's yeah. really about stamina and an unhealthy relationship. And it's also Jason, you would feel this too. And I can tell like in your books and your writing about stuff. It's like, it's also being furious at the concept of someone else doing it. <laughs> like, you know, like, <laughs> in the nicest yep. possible way that I can say yep. that to my peers. It's like, there are certain ways that I do things and there are certain films that I want to approach. And very much when I find the right people and collaborators to talk with me about new projects, I'm like, who are those people who have that unhealthy relationship with this, who are really going to get what I'm going for. And so, yeah, that's what, that's what it starts out with. It's where is the unhealthy relationship in the nicest possible way. Um, and so that's, that's how I do it. And, I've only ever missed and missed the boat on one huge movie. I'll tell you guys off air. I can't. I can't say it on it. But there's one huge movie that I was ready to do and ready to dip back into the minute podcast with, and I got an invite to do it from another producer, and I was a mad Blake. I was not happy. I was like, what. So yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's what it, and, and, and I find that those movies that I have an unhealthy relationship with, it's almost a way of purging it. I need to kind of, sure. I need to dig through it and I need to find what it was and then I can let it go. And then the next thing is so organic, which is why our shows sometimes fluctuate. Sometimes there's gaps. Sometimes there's too many shows um, and I don't sleep <laughs> for a year uh, like last right. year. Um, and uh, yeah, so, but that's what it is. I, I don't have a science. It's really just intuition.
0: Well, here's hoping for many, many more unhealthy relationships to rub themselves. <laughs> yeah. The best um, kind of
2: repeatable unhealthy relationships. Exactly. You know. Exactly.
0: So Blake, what year did you pick to talk to us about and why?
2: Uh so when I was studying uh film at university um i was obsessed with michael mann at the time I ended up writing a thesis on him at the time at university you? like a more critical you were? yeah i know right interesting um, okay. <laughs> it's All super right. you super off brand um yeah. but at the time my supervisor who was a great professor dr hamish ford had kind of like he's like michael mann just feels like a guy who they plucked out of new hollywood and makes movies in the 90s mm-hmm. and i was like mm-hmm. at the time i go what's new hollywood yeah, right. oh, wow. <laughs> It was like 2003. Like I, I was mm-hmm. a brand new baby yeah. cinephile who had no idea. And he, I was like, what's new Hollywood? And he's like, oh, okay, yeah. here you go. And yeah. so he, uh, I, I, I spent a big time of uh, my sort of post-grad early honors degree doing, like sitting in a library in the shittiest halogen lighting on a small VHS slash DVD <laughs> playing oh, TV. yeah. Uh, and yeah. watched and just combed New Hollywood. And I consider it kind of broadly from like 1968 to 80, like Raging Bulls sure. at the end. Um, sure. and, and Faces is kind of the beginning Cassavetes. And so I poured over movies and sat in the library and literally just went through this gigantic list of filmmakers and films. And so when there was an opportunity to be right at that linchpin of New mm-hmm. Hollywood, I thought 1970 is a fantastic year. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I love decade bookends because they kind of speak to what's going to happen in the forthcoming decade. And they also have a lot of baggage often about the previous decade. So it was really fun opportunity to select 1970 as the year um, that we got to chat about. So I'm, I'm super excited that I got to talk about a new Hollywood year and a big one at that.
0: There we go. Well, I'm super excited to hear what you have to say about it. Before I'm excited do, to hear what... you
1: cover 50 movies in one episode instead of one minute.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I might not be as good at it. <laughs> just tell everyone. <laughs> 60 well, second increments of my, uh, <laughs> my preference.
0: A, a minute per movie instead of uh, yeah. a movie per. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Mike is going to walk us through what was going on in the world around New Hollywood. Here's headlines
1: 1970. The Environmental Protection Agency was created in 1970 and run by a Republican from Indiana called William B. Ruckelshaus. Ruckelshaus? Yeah. Ruckelshaus. I'm going to go with Good. Ruckelshaus. All right. I'm just going to make a blanket statement that we'd be better off if we had more Republicans in power with names like William Ruckelshaus. There we go. In January, Richard Milhouse, because all the boring name ones have turned out to be terrible. In January, Mm -hmm. Richard Milhouse Nixon came back from a foreign trip and decided the White House security team needed a little flair, like the other countries with their royal guards and whatnot. Ever the problem solver, he designed an outfit. Have you ever seen this thing? White tunic, gold trim with like the gold braids on the arms and a fancy like shiny leather peaked hat. (laughs) <laughs> it's completely hilarious. You can find pictures, but they're okay. they're from a short time span.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, send me the pictures. We'll put it in the show notes. For sure. <laughs> Apparently,
1: place. the American public laughed so hard when they saw the new uniforms that even under presidential direction, they only lasted about 3 months before they were put into storage. And you want to know how ugly they were? Eventually, they were huh. sold to a marching band in Iowa. <laughs> oh. <laughs> He tried to put the White House security team in band uniforms. Like, (laughs) this is a terrible plan.
2: Look, Uh, In the Line of Fire would have been better with that for Clint, I reckon. (laughs) So that's that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying, guys. There's a take. There you go.
1: (laughs) Well, and you know, like, Nixon did so many bad things, we forgot about the uniforms. Right, right. Kind of pales in comparison. April 17, the fellas from uh, the Apollo 13 mission landed back on Earth in basically a storage container. This is a completely (laughs) insane story, and somebody should make a movie out of it.
0: Oh, interesting. Interesting Mm. idea. All right.
1: Mm. Yeah. Good IP. Pass that up to uh, somebody smart. Hollywood, maybe. In other space news, Japan became the fourth country to put a satellite in space. Now there's basically an orbiting garbage dump out there. But in 1970, it was still (laughs) mostly space. It was empty. Yes. Um, So is that the one that killed George Clooney? Possible. This is the news. This, <laughs> these are not movie references. Sorry. Right, in August, right, right. Uh, 17-year-old Deborah Wolfe was selected at Miss Smog America in Phila- Philadelphia after a contest that included contestants wearing bikinis and gas masks.
2: what oh. <laughs> is yeah, their video. There's, wait, uh, wait. Is this Mad Max? I've just been watching lots of exploitation. <laughs> you said a bikini and a gas? I think I saw that movie. <laughs>
1: Right, <laughs> Miss Smog America, Deborah nice. Wolf. Yeah, there is a picture, and uh, that'll be in the show notes too. Jimi nice. Hendrix died on September 18th, becoming a founding member of the 27 Club, RIP. On October 3rd, a plane carrying fans, coaches, and players from the Wichita State University football team flew into the side of a mountain, killing 31 people on board and the Wichita State University football program, which was never reconstituted as far as I know. I only know about this or care at all because we grew up there. Right. So it's sort of like right. wow. BTK. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, if you grew up there, you know about all of these things. You they, but you try to tell those stories anywhere else in the world and everybody's like, cool, bro. <laughs> then on November 15th, a plane carrying the Marshall University football team crashed into the Appalachians, killing 75 Jesus. people. And Jesus. yet somehow God. college football is still a thing. Hang up. So that's it. We got dead football teams. That's how we're going to wrap up uh, headlines this okay. time. You know, with some some Great. sports for dead people. That's uh, that's headlines. Thank you, Mike. All right, Blake Howard, you ready to do a top five? Yeah, let's do it.
0: okay so uh, our pre-show conversation we landed on a completely randomized top five order these are not ranked i don't even know what order blake is going to go in so blake what is the first movie on your top five list for
2: 19 and 70 let's go with bob rafelson's five easy pieces
1: Stand by the triple award winner is back five easy pieces Best Picture of the Year, Best Director, Bob Rafelson, Best Supporting Actress, Karen Black. Five Easy Pieces.
2: I
0: want you to hold it between your knees. This is like every bad 80s stand-up, like that was the cornerstone of their Jack impression. Yeah, was hold absolutely. it between your knees. It's a famous scene. There's a whole other. There's a whole movie around it. That's actually yeah. not quite that tone at all. It's a. Uh, it's sort of amazing.
1: No. Um,
0: why do you? Uh, so this is really. If you want to talk New Hollywood, like it's hard to get more New Hollywood than Five Easy Pieces. What is so? Uh, what What do you find so special about this one?
2: Uh, I found it really special because um, it has something where you see families and. You know this is just a, a, a great trope that I love in movies where people like run away from their families to do anything else. And this like kind of wealthy family at the core of this movie and and Jack's, you know, Robert Depierer, like you see him run away and they're like wealthy and he's a former musician and he'd rather work in an oil field like seven states away and be living hand to mouth and do all that sort of stuff. And then you go home and then you see the family and you're like, oh, yeah. I would run too. And it's that whole <laughs> existential thing of like, it, it do, it's loaded with all the, the sort of typical new Hollywood existentialism, which I think is fantastic, but it's anchored in such like this really rich family drama that I think just works a treat. And Rafelson is one of the most, damn patient filmmakers ever because the crux of what the movie is actually about is really kind of not revealed until 45 minutes into the movie, maybe an hour. And it's only like Mm -hmm. 90 minutes long or something. And so I just love the patience with which it sets the world and it sets the characters and sees, you know, Jack as Robert's way that he's kind of like attempting to self-sabotage and self-destruct, even if he, even if he quite can't understand why. And then the movie does such a brilliant job of rationalizing why he has that impulse towards the end of the movie. So I find it a really infinitely like rewarding movie to go back to. And it's not one that I revisit a lot, but when I watch it, I'm like, damn, Mm -hmm. this is cooked. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just, everyone across the board is so sensational. Um, I love like Lois Smith, um, you know, kind of queen of Twister in my early young life. Like seeing sure. her as like Partisha, his little sister is such a cutie pie and just is so adorable. And I always forget. And then am so gleefully surprised that she's in this movie. And um, Karen Black is just outstanding as Rayette. She's just, it's just a, it's a thankless performance, but she is outstanding in it. And yeah, I i just love this movie for its patience and and for the surprises that it has in store
0: yeah karen black is is really a fascinating case of like and i i'm i'm trying to to i i want to put this in a delicate and non-insulting way because i love karen black but she is one of these figures that you look at o- almost really kind of like gene hackman where it's like only in the 70s could this person have been like an ingenue <laughs> a movie yes. star she's yes. incredibly gifted actor she you she's so smart and charismatic and every choice she makes is interesting, but she's not like conventionally beautiful. She's sort of peculiar looking. Um, but like, this was an era where if you had the goods, that was what mattered, you know? And if you had an interesting face and your eyes are a little strange, like that was okay because look at all of the cool stuff she's doing in this performance. Nicholson to some extent is kind of the same way. Like he is more conventionally handsome, but he was very much a seventies movie star in a way that like, he would not have been a fifties movie star. He would have been a character actor in the fifties.
2: Yes. Yeah, he's he's the quintessential hot boy of the seventies, mm-hmm. but it's only because the seventies had a very specific taste. And so like, you know, Karen Black, her resume between seventy and seventy-five even is like Gatsby and Nashville. It's it's just it's actually stupid when you go back through it. And but yeah, I just I I love I love I love how bleak this movie is. I also love how well the family's rendered. I love Jack. He's Mm -hmm. just so himself. He's Mm -hmm. the kind of guy that like when he jumps into the back of a truck and plays a piano and it just drives off down a highway, like that's (laughs) such a Jack move. It's the coolest it's, it's got, yeah, it's, it's really in touch with exactly what it is, this movie. And it's so unique. Um, but it does have all those star power and all those qualities, but yeah, I just, I've I've got a lot, I have an exceptional amount of time for it. And, um, I'm not as big as a Rafelson head as some of my peers and friends, like, you know, Jen Johans, who, who recent guests of your show, she's a Rafelson head from way mm-hmm. back. But like mm-hmm. this is the one in the 1970s, like in seventy itself that I was like, This is a sensational movie and so typical of this era's ethos in, in the United States.
0: Yeah, well he and he's fascinating. I feel like, you know, uh, even unless you have read easy riders raging bulls unless you've seen a decade under the influence like he's not a figure who is discussed nearly as much as his peers and partly because it's not as impressive of a directorial filmography and it was a director's first year although he did direct some great movies but his the sort of the culmination of what he was doing as a director and a producer um yes. so many of the key movies early on in new hollywood were things that he had touched in some way um, yes. And we don't typically think of our 70s auteurs in those terms. Like I said, usually we're just talking about directors. But if you get that that Criterion box set, uh, you know, the America Lost and Found, that's sort of stuff he directed yes. but also produced. Like it's it's an incredible amount of really important work in a really short burst of time, like right at the beginning of this movement. Um, It's really
1: impressive. Hey, Jason, yeah. when did Working Class Hero come out?
0: Uh, the John
1: Lennon song. The John Lennon song. I want to say 1970. 1970, motherfucker. Like when we're talking about, (laughs) like, part of what's like so great about all this new Hollywood shit, like in this movie, and it's gonna come up over and over and over in this great list. This Mm -hmm. is a rich kid. This is a trustafarian who, yeah, it like decided he would rather go be an oil dude, right? Right. Like, and I don't mean like owning the oil rigs i mean running them you know (laughs) and i think that that's part of why she can be a famous movie star right now and he can be a famous movie star right right now it's not just sort of like oh people were into weird looking people then it working class hero was the cultural touchstone in the way that now like paul rudd plays you know, tech bros or whatever, you know right. what I mean? Like that was sort of the normal thing. All those Richard Pryor movies from the seventies working right. classes, fuck dude. Like, yeah. <laughs> and even when you, you know, when you look at all the cop movies, all the right. cops are presented working class guys, all these yeah. guys, right. And the women, they've all, they work in diners and shit, you know, yeah. it's just like, and that's the thing that we don't have anymore. And I think that's part of why, Yeah, the actors were so good because they were allowed to be a little ugly, Mm -hmm. and part of why the movies are so relatable.
2: They were allowed to be obvious, Michael. You nailed it because it's like one of my favorite scenes. Like it, I howl at it. Like there's a great cover that Billy Connolly does of the. D-I-V-O-R-C-E song Uh that is in this, like he does a cover of that song that has a lot more uh, added lyrics, which are very amusing if you haven't ever seen it. But Karen Black, like being upset that Robert's leaving her and playing divorce loudly (laughs) in her house on like a tape deck or whatever it is, a record just playing the song and him marching through the house is one of the best orchestrated scenes of like a camera and intimacy and emotion in a real space happening. And then him finally giving up and going, all right, we'll come on the trip. And then she just like pulls the blanket off herself and goes from like, you she's know, basically already like dressed Melancholia, <laughs> Yeah. She's dressed. It's like a kid faking to their parents that they're yeah. sick or whatever. It's so hilarious, but it's like, yeah, these are working class people. They're not sophisticated people and they're, they're not snooty and they're not their asses and, And that's what he he cannot reconcile in his family, this complete detachment from reality. And I think that that's what I love about this movie too.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah, it's really terrific. All right, Blake Howard, what is the next movie on your
2: top five for 1970? Let's go with John Cassavetes' Husbands. I could drink you under the table.
0: Bet you couldn't. Husbands.
2: (laughs) Husbands.
1: Three guys named Harry, Gus, and Archie, who go
2: to their best friend's funeral and fall in love Wonder. with life. You have to be free. You have to be an individual. Well, I'm not going home. If my wife opens her mouth to me about anything, I finish that fast. I'm going to get very drunk. I'm not going to shower for her. If I want to stink,
1: I'll stink. Like I've been telling my wife he years. Aside from sex, <laughs> I like you guys better.
0: A uh, uh, this is this might be like the most John Cassavetes movie <laughs> yeah. of all of John Casavetti's <laughs> movies.
2: It's it's it definitely is close. Like my favorite Cassavetes because of like the crime genre is Killing of a Chinese Bookie. It obviously stars Ben Gazzara. That's nice. my favorite. I nice. love that, especially the director's cut. I'm yeah. all about it. But man, alive the this kind of popularized the idea of a midlife crisis before that ever even had a terminology in a way. Yeah. And like these four friends who, uh, uh, and, and the remaining three meet up after one of their key quartet passes away. And in that moment they just have a crisis and particularly yeah. led by Ben Gazzara's Harry is just like, I don't want to go home. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to go back. I want to leave. I want to get the hell out of here. And, and just watching, um, you know, to be all like highfalutin and snooty and philosophical and critical. It's like cinema is about time. And yeah. that's why Cassavetes is so brilliant is his manipulation of time or just like stewing in a moment in, you know, and around a table, people singing songs and mm-hmm. bankers are abusing and people. That was <laughs> it's just, terrible. <laughs> it's and, it's excruciatingly great. Yeah.
0: yeah. And not letting you as the viewer, escape from that moment like no. not like like making you sit in there with them uh yes. and the power that 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 he yields at, or oh. that he wields as a director in doing that um and then after a while it becomes so uncomfortable that it becomes sort of fascinatingly entertaining and mesmerizing it's i can't describe what he's doing in this movie
2: yeah it's so brilliant and i just think also Gazar is so great because he is Separate, and I think that Cassavetti's and Peter Falk's relationship, which later the wonderful Elaine May uses and other mm-hmm. Cassavetti's mm-hmm. movies, use their relationship is so like they're they're like these, I don't know, man. They're like they're, they're like twins or something. They're like they speak a different language. They finish each other's sentences. Yeah. They're, they're, their relationship is so amazing, and watching them try to dig themselves out of this like necessary hole that they need to be in, and then watching him go completely off the rails in Harry and Ben character. I just, I find it fascinating. It feels so authentic and genuine. It feels so lived in and real. And yeah, I just, I I can't get enough. And you're exactly just you said, the more uncomfortable it is and more unbearable seemingly that it is, the better that this movie gets. And the more right. you can kind of like, I'm just going to relish the discomfort of this movie refusing to cut away um, mm-hmm. to something else. Cause the story is nowhere else. It's right here. It's the minutia of the behavior of these guys and the spontaneity of it that makes it feel so real. And I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly got some mates in my extended friend group who I know are going to ruin the night <laughs> every time we're together. And you are just kind of looking around and everyone's having fun yeah. and you look at them and you're like, "Are they? is this a good night or a bad night? And it's a yeah. coin toss. And the feeling of that, if you've ever had that in your life... Husbands is a movie where you're like, yep, I've been around mm. this guy where he just he doesn't care and he's gonna explode this whole night and he's gonna go off and get lost and then some of us are gonna try and find him and others are gonna go, who gives a shit and just go back to New York, you know, like we don't care. And uh so I I I think that the authenticity of this is also yeah. like really cuts close and yeah. Uh, I'm yeah I'm, I I am so impressed with him as a filmmaker casavetti's he's a he's a genius and uh, this this is one of you know one of his great movies and actually Jason I think you might be right it's like it's also that line of it it's not too obtuse that it couldn't be commercial it's like right. really commercial as well it's got big moments big scenes big themes um, but yeah the French friendships, friendships of these guys you can just feel it bleeding through the camera it's great right.
0: no I think that's a huge part of that sort of authenticity is you know there isn't there is i think a a different energy and a different intimacy to his films when he puts himself in them like you know the the fact that he is willing to to get in front of the camera and do what he's asking of falk and gazara in this movie Mm. um the way that he is willing to get in front of the camera and be as much of an open wound as he is in love streams with with jenna Like that, that I think that the sort of the, 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 the vulnerability and the the bravery uh, that he is putting out there in those films, I think they want to match that Yes. on top of the fact that then in this movie, you've also got these three you know who are who were very good friends who were very close friends who had relationships and uh a dynamics that were similar to this and you could watch that famous thing of them drunk on the Cavett show if you doubt it um <laughs> the way that that he is able to to capture that but also mold it and repurpose it dramatically uh yes. it's very smart and it's so easy to veer into self indulgence and a lot of the 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 critics, including you know our our beloved Pauline kale who didn't like his work, often accused him of that self indulgence. But I don't know it uh, when it works, it's it's it is its own unique thing.
2: Yeah, and I don't I don't think it has to. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to follow anyone's path here. He's like blazing mm-hmm. his own trail. He's so mm-hmm. unique. But yeah, no, it's a uh, it's one of my faves from this year. And yeah, don't forget, for sure. uh, friends, if you think you don't have that friend. That means you are that friend. <laughs> I was waiting for it. If you're, if you're friends, if you've never had that, you're the guy. I'm sorry.
1: Yep. It's true. Ask around. Everybody will agree. <laughs> Ask
2: around. Ask around.
0: Blake Howard, what is the third movie on your top five for 1970?
2: <laughs> sorry. Ask around. Okay. Um, all right. That's so good. Mike, that's great. Um, My next one is... um. I might go to, like, the smash. Robert Altman's mash.
1: Don't you use olives? We do have to make certain concessions to the war. We're three miles from the front line. This is the story of two indispensable military surgeons. They had the army over a barrel. What, did they take advantage of it? Yes. <laughs> mash. A motion picture that raises some important moral questions. And then it drops them.
0: Which, like, I forget, because you think of Altman as this specialized taste. You think of him as sort of, oh, well, he was forever sort of on the periphery, you know, doing his own thing or whatever, whatever. But, like, no, this movie was a huge commercial sensation. So much so, of course, that it, you know, I mean, like, they didn't make movies or they didn't make tv shows excuse me at that time out of flop movies like if you're (laughs) if you're if your movie got turned into a tv show it was because it was a big old hit um and the idea that a movie this irreverent and this anti-authoritarian
2: was was a huge huge blockbuster this year it still blows my mind yeah it's a gigantic movie and i i in Australia, particularly, like Mash ran for like forty years. It feels yes. like it feels <laughs> yes. like it's run. It ran for my entire life, and then repeated, and was always yes. on in prime time, and it was just ubiquitous. And it was all like it was later. I was much older. I reckon I would have been like 16, 17, 18, where I was like, "Wait, this was a movie? Like, right? I I, I never even imagined." And. So you see all the silly antics of 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 the show and obviously it's then massaged significantly because it's for a primetime broadcast TV mm-hmm. audience. And then you go and watch this and you're like, oh, this is so much more my speed. It's yeah. way sillier, way more over the top. Like it just totally patently ridiculous. Doesn't have any sort of, of that. It's not trying to aim for the same sort of like emotional center with people who've built long connections with these characters over many years. Uh, and I just, I love it. Like Elliot Gould, Mm -hmm. I mean with the handlebar mustache Sutherland Mm -hmm. Tom Skerritt like Robert Duvall doing his most thankless yes like whiny role of all time and just completely like committing to the bit Uh, just sensational it's just so fun and so silly and you it's one of those movies anytime you put it on even if you passively try and watch it it's a it's a day killer because it's like I'm gonna no I'm sorry I have to just sit down and watch this it's so fun just it's a great hang movie just to be with these folk and you know altman seminal filmmaker obviously um Mm -hmm. you know long goodbye is probably one of my faves but you could you know throw a dart and hit something great that people are going to love across his career but yes yeah this is just so funny and silly and quotable and ridiculous and yeah you can't deny how massive it is that it then became like A decade occupying behemoth. It became a (laughs) fucking juggernaut, which is like,
0: I don't think that's what Altman was setting out to make when he he made
1: this The next movie he made was McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Like, no, he was not trying to make TV shows. (laughs) Yeah,
2: exactly. I'm sure when they came to him and like, we want to turn this into a TV show, I was like, fine. (laughs) <laughs> he just didn't care. he's just like yeah whatever you want the great
0: story if i recall correctly and fuck if i fuck this up i apologize in advance but like you know the, the original deal that he had made when fox hired him to make this movie because he was a nobody he'd made like a couple of movies that nobody had seen so he didn't get a great deal he did not get sort of the kind of back-end participation where he didn't make any money off of mash the tv show being as hugely successful as it was but what he did do was he hired his son to write the suicide is painless the opening theme song which is the opening theme song to the tv show so his son got rich off the tv show (laughs) that every time the, the show aired his kid got a check so that worked out at least for the family
1: i don't know I can
2: still uh, sing that song. Yeah, he got he got money in Australian dollars, he got <laughs> yeah. money in UK dollars, he got yep. money. Sorry, it's pounds sterling. He got it in America. He, that guy's he still did. getting money. He did. Um the thing that bloat that
0: still sort of jars me whenever I watch this movie and I re, try to revisit it periodically um is that he is so balls out with the gore in those yes. surgical scenes. Um, yes. Which is, you know, that, 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 you know, the, the sort of the contrast between, you know, in and out of the operating theater is maintained on the TV show, but they, those, Those scenes are nowhere near as bloody and gory and raw as they are in the movie. And I think that's such a such an amazing ballsy choice like to to potentially sink the comedy of this thing by having these uh, astonishingly gory operating room scenes. But it's like it keeps it from ever feeling like it's overly trivializing what the movie is about which is war you know and and that is one way that you also can keep in mind when it was made that this was made in 1970 at the height of the vietnam war and that he was deliberately attempting to sort of blur the exactly when it was set that it's set during the korean war but he only put the korean war text at the beginning when fox made him because he wanted yes. it to feel like it could be uh, about any war that you wanted it to be about, including the one that was currently being
2: fought. I think that that's what's so powerful is that ultimately he is making a film about the Vietnam War and he's yep. saying that we can satirize this and the only way that we're going to get through is a sort of almost like a gallows sense of humor satire because it's so awful and we're not trivializing anything here, but it's like it's not an inhuman thing for us to try and make light of just the lives around this tragedy, but we can't ever take that away. And, you know, you even said something small. It's like in the TV show, how many white bedsheets, very clean white bedsheets are over the bodies they're operating on? And in the movie you watch it and it's just... Blood-stained gore everywhere, <laughs> hands in chest cavities. It's like it's, an Argento
0: like, movie in that. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's, like, it's exactly it's Argento. It scenes by Argento, but it's like yeah. it's that it's that sort of design. And so I think that that's what's you know so critically important is like he he might have been sort of doing it right under the studio's nose, and they might have been too silly to to kind of see what he was doing. But I think that right. that's exactly what he's trying to say. It's like satire here. We need to have the gallows humor. We need to make light of it because the we need to get the maximum attention to this this you know ongoing tragedy that's happening in our society
0: all right Blake what is the fourth movie on your top five for 19.7
2: Zabriskie Point
1: Zabriskie Point a remote and barren blister of land in the American desert as isolated as the face of the moon Zabriskie Point where a boy and a girl meet and touch and blow their minds.
0: This is uh, this is an extremely 1970
2: movie. Wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> be more 70s if you tried. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Red Desert big movie for me around the time that I was studying. Um, I think that Michael Mann and Michelangelo Antonioni have the same kind of, um, I guess, industrial influences. If you look at some Mm. of his movies and their relationships to both romance and sort of industry. And I love Zabrisky Point because it's like this time watching it, revisiting it for this show, it was the movie that felt, almost like a surrealist dream version of how to blow up a pipeline. You know, like, it's (laughs) like, you know, where it's, it's, what it does is it's, it's set, you know, it kicks off with this amazing, you know, series of students like talking and trying to protest against police violence, brutality, and sort of authoritarian rule of their student body and being Restricted from wanting to protest and have change because that's the environment and it's so environmentally specific to that time. And then it goes off into this weird sort of escape road movie that takes you into like a dreamlike state of like the zenith of hippiedom, right? It's like going off to a place the natural environment woos you into like lovemaking, peace, this orgiastic kind of like beauty of nature and humans kind of uh, adopting a more sort of uh, a naturalistic approach to life rather than this like cold, hard edged industry. And then it kills its own dream and brings you back mm-hmm. to the stark reality of brutal violence police overstepping their boundaries playing like judge dread you know just executing people not knowing whether they're innocent or guilty and his thesis is essentially the only way to fix this is just to kill them all like just explode everything right as one of the greatest explosion scenes i think i saw it at university in like six classes but it's got (laughs) just one of the greatest (laughs) endings of all time and i i i one thing that i watched now i was like yes this is so told in the in the tenor of its time and in the language and the vernacular of its time. So it, it does kind of, you know, I can see why at the time it was sort of mixed received. Some people thought it was a masterpiece. Others thought it was kind of like just a piece of Italian fluff. Right. Um, but I, when I look back on it, I'm like, uh, you know, I literally only caught up on how to blow up a pipeline earlier this year in 24 from 23 from great end of year lists of people going like, you got to check out this movie and I missed it. Right. And so I checked it out and I was just like, That would be a great double feature. Just talking about the language of like, what do you do with oppression? What do you do with systems that feel like they're impossible to shake? No matter what kind of, uh, you know, what what kind of lobbying you do, what kind of grassroots politicking, what kind of like protests you do when it's just that they're just going to answer everything that you have reason with violence. And it's like, well, blow it all up. Yeah. Um. And and I feel like they've got the same answers, except they're just holding radically different means. So I I had a treat catching up with this because I hadn't seen it in ages, but I had such a fond memory of it that I was like, when you when we chose seventy as the year and you guys gave me the thumbs up, I was like, this is yeah, yeah. I'm talking about Zabriskie Point. Yeah.
0: No. I mean, what's on screen is fascinating. Um. I do love this sort of particular moment um you know that first half hour or so could almost like it almost feels like you could play it right after medium cool and it's got that same Mm. sort of like you know let's that fusion of narrative and documentary that was really kind of happening for the first time at least in this specific verite sort of strain at that moment um but you know what i think is is also fascinating is you know when you start looking into how this movie came to be you know that that basically he got the gig because you know uh blow up was this spectacular you know un, uh, uh, unexpected sleeper hit uh did great in american art houses partially because there was pubic hair in it but you know um <laughs> and then you know he comes over to to you know he he makes this movie for MGM where it is. Yes. Like the message is like, no, just kill all the capitalists. And they <laughs> were not crazy about his movie. Uh, they did not <laughs> want to release this movie MGM. Um, and in fact, recently our friend Larry Karaszewski, uh, found an article, you know, from 70 or so about, you know, movies that had been made that, that the studios were started sort of sitting on or didn't want to release. And this is one of the ones that they mentioned. Um, It's not surprising, I guess, that they were hesitant about putting this one out in the world. So knowing that, it almost feels like contraband in a way, which I'm I'm kind of a sucker for uh, across the board.
1: I went and read a we review talk. after watching this. I had never seen this before. Thank you very much for bringing this into my life. And one of the things I read said, this is the worst movie ever made by an acknowledged master. And I was like, you got half of that sentence right. I don't know what the <laughs> fuck you're <laughs> talking about. Like, <laughs> like, that's a, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, like like we were talking about fitting in the sort of context of 1970. Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It feels like an expression that very few people sort of had the creativity or the sack to do. And it might have been one of those things where it took someone who wasn't from here to come make the thing about here. Yes. Yes.
0: Very much so. Yeah. There was a lot of that happening in this period. Always (laughs) worth remembering that Midnight Cowboy was made by a Brit. Um. All right, let's round it out then, Blake. What is the fifth and final movie on your 1970 top five?
2: We're, we're skipping over to Europe and going to le Cercle Rouge. Those
0: who have a rendezvous <laughs> at the interior of this circle will not fail to find themselves there or die. It's such a great title to say in French. Le cercle rouge. Le cercle rouge. Le cercle La rouge. <laughs> Do
2: your best, your best, Peppy Le Pew voice. Yeah, it's good. Absolutely, Jean-Pierre Melville, a master, huge influence on my favorite filmmaker, Michael Mann. One of the greatest heist movies ever made. Alain Delon. I mean, what a snack. Who the fuck um, is cooler than Alain Delon in this movie? No no one ever. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really simple. Yeah. Um I I love, love, love this movie. I think it's a perfect movie. And I have a little anecdote that um Brian Koppelman uh spoke to me on my show one time, great uh you know, writer behind things like billions mm-hmm. and rounders, and had been talking about a studio commissioning him and his writing partner, Levine, to like remake. Le Cirque Rouge for America and they started like they 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 participated in the exercise of sure. like all right, well let's have a look at you know how this would work, started to put together a treatment. And Coleman's feedback was like, you can't make this. It's just, it's just French. Like it's it's <laughs> it, it just not going to make sense because it's too French. And, yes. and they're like, well, why won't it work? He's like, it's just French. And I love that. And I've since every time I've rewatched it, which is many times since then, I'm like, yes, it is. there There is a particular attitude and a particular mm-hmm. patience and a pace and an expectation around this movie that it is like, it's it's not something that can be replicated and i think if you replicated it it would just feel like a cheesy knockoff. You saw uh, what
1: happened when they moved wicker man from the hebrides to fucking california, <laughs> right? It's a bad yes. plan.
2: Yeah, it's it just it just didn't work. And so yeah, i just love this movie. I think it is so so precise like a surgeon level patience. It is termite art at the highest levels. It's cat and mouse and um it's just delicious. It is something to savour. It is so fine a vintage um, that I just can't recommend it enough. And it has the deepest thing about heist movies, which I think we all love, is this this sense of an impossible justice that we're striving toward. It's like you can really mm. back the people that you're watching conduct the heist because they're trying to write their lives and exact justice on an unjust world. And right. I just think it's one of the best exemplars of that as a, as a heist film. And I, I just can't get enough of it. I, I really like revisiting it and yeah. Uh, I, yeah, it's, it's special.
0: I mean, the, the, the one of my favorite sort of dynamics, if you, if you think about films as being in conversation with each other, which I do, yes, the symbiosis between French and American crime movies and the ways in which Mm -hmm. these French filmmakers who were in love with, um, you know, with like American crime movies of like the, the forties were reinventing them, commenting on them, remaking them, but making them their own in the fifties and sixties like that's there's so there's such a rich like that is filmmakers talking to each other in the best possible way because then of course the, the 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 ways that they're redefining the crime movie the ways that they're redefining cool are then influencing what american filmmakers are doing in the 1970s yes but on top of all of that what you've got here is this great thing where like melville is one of the masters you know of that art form he's been doing this kind of movie now for i don't know what 10 15 years
2: 10 15 years easy yeah
0: so by the time he's making this movie in 1970 towards the end of this career he's doing that really incredible thing where a filmmaker is making a movie that is of this genre and that's also commenting on the genre and commenting on his own work And the closest sort of analogy I've got to that for a contemporary viewer is is Scorsese doing The Irishman. Like, the the master gangster filmmaker doing one more gangster movie. um, That's literally like the guy picking out his own coffin. Where it becomes (laughs) not just that movie, but also... a movie about the end of an era. And I think that's a lot of what makes
2: this film feel so rich and so textured and so beautiful. Yeah. This is the most out of time movie Mm. that I've picked in my list. It doesn't feel like it feels less wedded to that. And, and so I, that's exactly, you're, you're speaking, you know, so, so on point, which is like, it has a detachment. And you're like, why does it feel detached? Is because it's less about the time that it's being made. Like Westerns are more about the time that the film is made then totally the time to- then the time that it's set usually totally. even if they're surrealist westerns right and so this is very much like this is out of time and it feels like a throwback because it's also like it feels like technology's a few years past this it feels like you know we're about to be in the the you know paranoia thriller genre and this feels like it's 10 years too old and yeah mm-hmm. i just i love i love everything about it it's just an instant classic it's timeless it's perfect I agree.
0: I agree. All right. Well, thank you, Blake, for that incredible top five. Uh, now let's find out about the big doings of the entertainment business in the year 1970. Here is Mike with the Hollywood Minute.
1: Hollywood breaks from the Hollywood scene. <laughs> Oh, man, all the stuff we just talked about won all the awards. Let's keep it moving. (laughs) Let's let's Uh, pretend like that happened. That's not how movies work. Patton was the big winner at the 43rd Academy Awards, picking up prizes for Best Picture, Best Director, Franklin J. Schaffner, Best Actor, George C. Scott, and Best Screenplay for Edmund H. North, and a promising newcomer named Francis Ford Coppola, who would parlay that Oscar into a a gig on a little bit of magic called The Godfather.
0: Blake, uh, where do you land on Patton?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm am i I'm a fan of it because I just love I love George C Scott like it's George C Scott unleashed. It's like mm-hmm. everything that he wanted to, it's like it's like him in the serious version of Doctor Strange love. You know, like mm-hmm. him just getting everything that he ever wanted to do, but it's not one that I go back to as much despite all the amazing people sure. that are in it. It's sure. it's kind of like one that you have to do more so than it's what America wanted to think of itself as for so many <laughs> other movies uh different to that. Yeah.
1: Well yeah. said.
0: I mean it's a fa- it's a fascinating movie because it is it's written ambiguously enough and and played on on in a way that like mm. it can be Richard Nixon's favorite movie as it was. Yes. But it can also like if you want to see it as critical of Patton you can. Yes. Um and and I I actually I do like that kind of ambiguity about it. I don't know.
1: Yeah out of all the George C Scott movies I've ever seen it's the one where it seemed like he was playing somebody who was like as ridiculous as he was right so like <laughs> it's the first time that he really that he could be unleashed cuz how often do you get to play characters that absurd right yeah Yeah. oh
0: and we should mention too this was the movie for which he won that best actor oscar that he won he refused he he didn't he didn't believe in awards he didn't believe in the oscars he didn't come to the ceremony they tried to they 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 handed it to him and they had to say we we mr scott is not here we'll accept it on his behalf and that was that like that's that's stones right there man hats (laughs) off to george c scott
1: Best Actress went to Women in Love's Glenda Jackson with supporting prizes going to John Mills and Ryan's Daughter and Helen Hayes for Airport. Not Airplane, Airport. No, Airport. (laughs) airport. Correct. (laughs) Airport was also the number two movie at the box office for 1970, right behind Love Story, which grossed $50 million. MASH came in number three, the first and biggest hit of Robert Altman's career. It also won the Palme d'Or at that year's Cannes Film Festival. All right. Yeah, other big grocers of '70 included the aforementioned Patton, Woodstock, and Little Big Man.
2: Blake, have you uh, have you seen Love Story? I haven't seen Love Story, but I've seen Little Big Man like a million times. I'm <laughs> Little Big Man, Western, Psycho, yeah, like uh, <laughs> awfully so good. I, I, yeah, really good. I really like it. And A Man Called Horse, which I think is a '70 as well from memory. Yeah, both of those like good revisionist Western. Yeah, uh, but no, I haven't seen Love Story. I haven't yeah, seen it.
0: you're you're okay. You're alright. <laughs>
2: thanks That's good i mean r.i.p ryan o'neill but you're
0: okay okay
1: the woodstock here is the the concert film right it's not sure like,
0: is buddy yeah like sure an early is. hoff
1: dustin hoffman movie i don't know about no no
0: no huge that was for quite some time the highest grossing documentary of all time was yes uh michael wadley's woodstock co-edited by mr martin scorsese
1: Because if you would have told me it was a movie that, like, introduced the world to Birkenstocks, I would have believed (laughs) it. The Japan World Exposition was held in Osaka from March through September, debuting an exciting new cinematic technology, IMAX. Oh. Ever heard of IMAX? Oh, IMAX, we call that. There you go. The first IMAX movie ever screened was Tiger Child, a 17-minute experimental film from Canadian director Donald Britton.
2: All right.
1: Have you That's seen awesome. I never, Tiger no, Child? I, I've
2: never seen I've never seen Tiger Child, but I'm I'm like, IMAX is that old? That's awesome. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Also this year, one of the first studio casualties of the new Hollywood MGM began selling off props and studio backlot property to stave insolvency.
0: So the the, the David Zasloff of the era <laughs> went to work selling MGM offer parts.
2: <laughs> I wonder I wonder whose article got edited. <laughs> I don't know anyone that
1: would happen to. <laughs> so,
0: oh, you
2: know. goodness
1: knows. Notable <laughs> departures in 1970 included Gypsy Rose Lee. Look her up if that name isn't familiar. Billy Burke, best known as Glinda, the Good Witch and the Wizard of Oz. Ed right. Begley Sr., who starred mm-hmm. in 12 Angry Men and Patterns, among others. Francis mm-hmm. Farmer, whose tragic story would be dramatized by Jessica Lange in 1982's Francis, and Charles Ruggles, star of Ruggles of Red Gap, which you can hear about on our 1935 episode with Leonard Malton. and man, Plug. that's a good movie.
0: Good movie. Great movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Notable births of 1970 include Heather Graham, Minnie Driver, Rachel Weisz, we say vice Weiss. in America, mm-hmm. has she convinced sure. us to do that? Ione yeah. Sky, uh, Taraji P Henson, Uma Thurman, Nia Long, Sarah Silverman, Jennifer Connolly, Will Jesus, Arnett. Jesus,
0: this was a year for hot people to get
1: born. Holy <laughs> fuck! <laughs> right. See, I'm glad you said it because I was like, Jesus
0: Christ. Tina like F- everyone I had a crush on in the '90s was born <laughs> yeah, in 1970.
2: Just taking, I was just taking tick- those off the list.
1: <laughs> we're gonna, we're gonna come up on a few that you'll let pass. Don't you worry. Right. Tina Fey, Bobby Cannavale, mm-hmm. Simon Pegg. Yeah. Octavius yeah. spencer i mean yeah. you're gonna f- nick offerman i guess for somebody uh, right
0: yeah he's a, Some, he's the best man there i don't know if you're familiar with the bear community um <laughs> michael hall but i'm sure nick is an icon among that demo
1: when are we going to start using the big Luther, uh, skinny Luther for Kevin Smith? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was born in 1970, whatever his weight yep. situation is. M. Night Shyamalan, yep. River Phoenix, Melissa McCarthy, Ethan Hawke, Martha Plimpton, Regina Hall, and director Todd Phillips. Currently getting off somewhere, getting high on his own supply.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: You know what? Never mind. I would fuck all those people. You're right. And finally, on October 24th, Joan Crawford's final film, Trog, was released in theaters. Not an ideal closer, but also not a bad time if you've had a couple and are looking for something to giggle at. That's your Hollywood Minute. Thank you, Mike. Blake, you
0: ready to do a lightning round? Yeah, let's do it. All right, you know how it works. I'm going to feed you a list of titles pulled from John Willis's Screen World Film Annual from 1970. You can comment briefly on each or pass if you wish. And here we go. The aforementioned Woodstock.
2: Yeah, saw it a million times uh, in a documentary cinema course because it was like the seminal one, and I think it played on like Australian TV on Sundays for like twenty five years <laughs> at three pm. So I just, I just want to say it was on. It was on around and kind of ubiquitous. And like you may have thought you didn't see it, but you saw it seven times. So yeah, I've, I've seen it a few times. It's really good.
0: Speaking of concert films, Give Me Shelter was released in nineteen seventy.
2: Man, great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ter- terrific movie, and. Uh, an even more fascinating backstory. It's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like a, a better read, actually, than a movie. The movie's great, but the the behind the scenes read is outstanding.
0: John G. Avildsen's Joe. I, I haven't seen it. There's a really good episode. Remade, right? of the, there's a really good episode of the Fun City Cinema podcast about Joe. Mm. Um,
2: the honeymoon killers. No, I'm gonna pass on that. I didn't see Honeymoon Killers. Darker than Amber. No, pass. El Topo. Oh yeah. El Topo. It was my honorable mention. Uh, uh, Jodorowsky's El Topo um, in my list. Really hard not to put it on there. Yeah. I love this movie because again, it's a massive surrealist Western that is saying everything that it wants to say about the seventies and morality and religion and then ends with the most 1970 shit of all time. Uh, so yeah, I love this movie. It's terrific, and yeah. it has every it like. It's a commentary on all the things that it's, it's you know it's trying to critique, but it is participating in the fact that it's a giant freak show with blood and murder and tits. It's great. 1970s,
0: other war comedy, Catch Twenty Two.
2: Yeah, um, really like Catch-22. The other Robert Altman movie from 1970, Brewster McCloud. I've seen Brewster, but I saw it like five million years ago. So I I don't have a lot of memories of it like right off the bat. Um, But the thing I would say for your listeners internationally is Australia, for the longest time, like, sucked with everything kind of pre-1980 in video stores like uh, you know it was like Jaws was the earliest you know early 70s stuff was always hard to kind of come by so um you know other than like big religious epics from the 30s and then it kind of just faded into you know like the late 70s so some of these things when I'm looking through the 70s list I'm like yeah I've never seen that or never seen it around in Australia. Hal Ashby's the landlord. Yeah I I I have a vague recollection of this because, again, Ashby was one of those New Hollywood folks that mm-hmm. I kind of had to check out, but it's not one of the ones that is high on my like Ashby list, uh, if you like. Frank
0: Perry's Diary of a Mad Housewife. Never seen it. The Ballad of Cable Hogue.
2: Yeah, yeah. This movie rules. Awesome. <laughs> yes, <laughs> It's, it's, good. Yeah, it's uh, like, again, it, uh, there's in amongst there's um i think it's they call me trinity's another 1970 like there there's a bunch mm-hmm. of the like 1970s revisionist westerns that i'm very familiar with and i i love westerns morality plays and the the yeah i i love them so yeah ballad of Keble hug i mean yes great movie clint eastwood in two mules for sister sarah i've got that on blu-ray i just got this eastwood box set and it's one that i haven't seen so i'm very oh, excited about checking oh it out. god it's good yeah Yeah, it's really good. But I recently got an Eastwood box set and I was like so excited because I found a gem that I hadn't seen. So I'm like, yeah, got it. Another Eastwood movie in 1970, Kelly's Heroes. I mean, again, another movie that really had Australian 5.30 Sunday sewn up for like 25 (laughs) years. Um, Woodstock in the afternoon, Kelly's Heroes at 5.30. Uh, There we go. Yeah, it's, yeah, you know, a, a, a classic... A classic adventure war movie with all those '70s guys, um, and not taking itself seriously at all. Very much trying to be in the mash, yeah. Um, and even has like Sutherland in it as well. So it's like, yeah, Sutherland just in the in the mm-hmm. war adventure kind of uh, movie genre this year in a big way. Billy Friedkin's The Boys in the Band. Yeah, I. This is a blind spot for me, and I'm ashamed to say it because I've been going back through a lot of Billy Freak and uh, May he Rest in Peace from last year, and I haven't. I've never seen it. Is it good?
0: Uh yeah, it is. It is, and and it's. Uh, it has aged in interesting ways, but uh, it's worth it's worth checking out. Brian De Palma's Hey, I, uh, excuse me. Brian De Palma's Hi Mom I almost called it Hey
2: Mom yeah. That's not the name <laughs> Hey <Hi> Mom, mom. <laughs> Hey Mom That's the remake That's the remake Going go. straight to Netflix <laughs> um, Yeah no I've, I've I, Again I. Brian De Palma Big new Hollywood guy mm-hmm. Saw all these movies Not one of the big ones In my opinion I'm sorry Travis Woods My friend is probably Listening to this And wants to kill me um, But uh, yeah Not one of my big ones But yeah It's De Palma So it's always worth a watch
0: Melvin Van Peebles Watermelon Man Never heard and or seen it. Uh, and finally, just because I couldn't resist the opportunity to say this title, Sidney Poitier and They Call Me Mr. Tibbs.
2: Yes, I did watch this <laughs> last year, actually, because I'd seen In the Heat of the Nights 27,000 times, and I watched yep. They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. Um, and it's not good. Um, <laughs> it's, it's not anything like In the Heat of the Night, but he's great, and I he love is. Poitier and um yeah it's a really bizarre one and it kind of you know the the alienation and the um and the oppression of the first one is kind of gone it's like almost got this like weird like cosby storyline at its center as well as the crimes that it's portraying and it's weird um yeah. but if you're a, in the heat of the night completist which i've never said before in my life <laughs> watch it i guess there you go all right that closes out our
0: lightning round well done sir uh blake where can people follow you on social media
2: yeah on socials it's just uh at one blake minute on twitter i don't call it x and instagram and if you're looking for anything that i'm doing it's just oneheatminute.com that has all of our shows and everything that we're up to is is just there that's where you can find me Yeah. Yeah.
0: There's, it's a great feed. They're always, there's, I like that there's often more than one thing happening. So, Hey, you know, if you don't like Miami Vice, maybe you like Midnight Run. Um, and that, and that show again is Midnight Run Through that you're doing with Jen. How much longer will that one be going roughly?
2: that that's 12 episodes. So that'll, I think that actually leads us into, I'll just, I'll go back to my little calendar cause I have to have one. It of leads course. us into kind of the middle of March. And then my next mini series will kick off um, straight into there, which is a sneakers podcast called too many minutes. Oh shit. Um, so, um, so oh, doing shit. a mini series on sneakers, which is yes! super fun. Um, so yeah, got Phil Alden Robinson, uh, Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm trying to get a friend wow. of the show, Donald Logue to come and talk about it as well, as well as some other fantastic fantastic guests and friends of uh everything that we've been doing so yeah gonna have a, oh, a fun great. time going back into sneakers yeah
0: that's great god i love that fucking movie all right well can't wait to hear that uh i am fun city cinema probably can't Instagram. wait to hear
2: jason on it at some at somewhere hey because now that hey. i know i've got another sneakers head here we go <laughs> it's
0: we've got it on it's been recorded you cannot back out
2: uh, <laughs> not taking it back I'm Fun
0: City Cinema on Instagram, Jason Dash Bailey on Blue Sky and Letterboxd where you can find under my list the top fives for every episode of the show. Mike, where can people find you?
1: Uh, you can find me at fifth column films on Instagram where I have been inspired by my friend Jason Bailey to hey. do a much better job of um documenting the documenting. Uh, we go. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the middle of a big project that has a, a major sort of archival component. And I have s- seen so many newspaper articles that you've taken pictures of and just cool shit that you've done on Instagram that I was like, all right, that's a version of social media that I can stomach. Uh, there we go. I yes. can't talk about the projects yet, but there's going to be some mystery pictures until all the paperwork gets signed in a couple weeks. Yay.
0: And of course, if you like the show and think other people might like it too, please leave us a rating and or a review on your podcatcher of choice. There are just so fucking many movie podcasts out there. Oh so your recommendations really do help us out. Mike, before we go, and we I get to go back to saying this because we should have fronted this a little more. This is our first time talking about 1970. This is our first non-revisit of season two. So Mike, what is your favorite movie of 1970? <laughs>
1: My favorite movie of 1970 is called Meeting the Man, James Baldwin in Paris, and it is yes. it's a short documentary, and it is great because it's Baldwin talking in 1970, but what's sure. really great about it is that it's made by these white boys from England who showed up and didn't ask the right questions. And <laughs> when you don't ask James Baldwin the right questions and he says something to you about it, the response is not, well, then how should I ask it? which is what his initial response is. And not only did they film this dude like saying to Baldwin, like, no, but don't you understand? I've read all your books. I get it. I know what it's like. (laughs) Not only was he stupid enough to go there and say that, but he was stupid enough to film it and triple stupid enough to actually use it, which is like, to be honest, like as a white dude who does a lot of criminal justice shit, I was really inspired by the fact that this guy, like, actually... And I saw this movie a long time ago, and I watch it every time I think I might not be ready for something. And <laughs> when you're watching this movie, like, you yeah. want to th- to to feel like you're James Baldwin, but you're probably not. You're probably the guy yeah. from England, and that's a great reminder sometimes. I just... That movie's got the balls, you know? Yeah. and And because he had the balls... To use that stuff in the movie, to film it, to use it, it's not just a talking headpiece. Because, you know, like when you're talking to like, James yeah. Baldwin wasn't just like eloquent on black shit. Like this was one of right. the most eloquent people in the world in 1970, you know, yeah. and he rearranged this guy's head. And then the guy actually let that be the movie instead of trying to fake like he didn't fucking learn anything while he was there. Right. <laughs> so it, it's a it's a good doc. It's a good doc, you know, and it's short. God bless it. How about you?
0: Okay, so my my favorite 5 minutes of a movie from 1970 is the opening sequence of CC and Company, which is a totally otherwise mostly forgettable uh Joe Namath biker exploitation movie, but it opens with this incredible sequence where Joe Namath goes into a grocery store cuz he's hungry. And he walks through the store and he like goes to the bread aisle and gets a couple pieces of bread out of a bread uh, package. And then he strolls over to the condiment aisle and gets a little mustard out of one. And then he goes over to the meat aisle and he makes and you just realize that he's just making a sandwich in the grocery store. And then he just eats his sandwich while he walks through the grocery store and he leaves. If the whole movie were as great as that, it would be my favorite movie of 1970 as it is. I'll put it up against the opening of Long Goodbye like it's that good. Wow! My favorite full movie of 1970 is Russ Meyer's Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which was the first Russ Meyer movie I saw and should always be that for everyone. It is fast and funny and filthy and great. It has an energy that is absolutely its own i've never seen another filmmaker replicate it i don't know that russ meyer ever did it as well in his (laughs) career but it is it's it's just it's uh sui generis if you will there is no movie there is no movie on this planet like beyond the valley of the dolls and i don't know how else to say it so that's all i'm going to say thank you again blake for coming on the show
2: Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. This has been a blast. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Jason.
0: And thank you for listening.